Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Ruth Poniarski, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. I'm super excited for our time together. So like we talked about before we hit record, everybody has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. So with your permission, we're gonna start with where you were born and we're gonna go all the way up to today with your life story. And then we can talk about anything that you're working on today and or for tomorrow. And I know we're gonna talk about your book, which I'm super excited to talk about, okay? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so let's, so tell us where you were born. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, Long Island, New York. Yeah. Actually the city. Okay. Raised in Glen Cove, okay. which is a little city on Long Island by the water. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful town with a lot of amenities. Yeah. So and, what, yeah. what was your favorite thing about growing up in Glencoe? Oh, the amazing things. We lived sort of on a hilly street. So when it really snowed back then, mm -hmm. the school would close and we would go sleigh riding down this very hilly street. Oh, we had cool. a beach, which was part of our community. Wow. So in the summers, and there were a lot of children, the neighborhood was sort of like a post-World War II baby boom kind of neighborhood. So oh, there were a lot it. of kids. I love it. I love so it. We That's really so had cool. a real community. Yeah. What a great way to grow up. Yeah. Growing up, who was the most influential person to you? That's very interesting. I, you know, I think my mother, yeah. you know, she, she was like a, an artist. She was very talented. Yeah. She pursued a, a career as a housewife and mother, which I give her a lot of credit. Yeah. But she also was very talented. And when she was in her high school years back in Brooklyn and Manhattan, she was in the All City Chorus. Ooh. She sang with an operatic voice. Oh, she, she had a gorgeous. All City Orchestra, which was really very big back then. Yeah, absolutely. And then she also went a year to the Traphagen School of Design. So she learned to design clothing and she was very, very ahead of herself. Oh, I love it. But. The downside of that was her parents really didn't nurture her to develop a career in one of those talents. She's multi-talented. Yeah. Sometimes when you're multi-talented, you have a choice. You have a difficult choice deciding yeah. which avenue you want to go to. You're like, yeah, you which know, path. Yeah. which path. So that happened to my mother. So where did you go to high school? I went to Glen Cove Public High School. Okay. I was in public school subject? all my life. Did your favorite subject? My favorite subject was math, yeah. physics. Wow. I didn't take any art in high school. Really? But I will tell you one thing. When I was about six years old, yeah. my mother took me to a life drawing class. Okay. Where I had to depict a drawing of a nude 
female model. And she set me aside. She says, Ruth, don't laugh. Don't laugh at this model. And I didn't. I took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. I drew this great Picasso drawing. Mm -hmm. I was able to depict the torso area very well. And then my my concentration kind of wavered a little bit back then. Mm -hmm. So I drew the legs a little bit like a Picasso style drawing. Right. And it was very advanced for my age. So what effect did that have on you? It it made me think that one day maybe I will be an artist, even though I didn't take it in high school. I didn't take the course in high school. Yeah. And. I, in the back of my mind, even though I didn't even take it up in college, yeah. but always in the back of my mind, I was going to be an artist. So what? I had this dual kind of conflict in my mind. What do you think motivated your mom to take you to that class? I think she wanted me, I don't know, to like have a new exposure and to learn to draw maybe. So that's a little out of the ordinary, right? For a sixth, you said sixth grade? six years old okay so you're a kindergartner yes right and your mom's taking you to to an to a to a class where you're going to literally draw on using a you know observing a nude female yes doesn't that seem a little out of the out of the context a little out of the order yes my mother my mother god bless her she's a little eccentric well there's nothing <laughs> wrong with eccentric i'm just I'm just yeah. trying to understand a six-year-old in that context, right? And yeah. then how and then how that affects you going forward because obviously it had an impact. You can tell just from just from listening to you describe it, you can tell that was an emotional event. And it was something that had a major impact on you going forward in your life. It absolutely did. It, it just know, like I, opened a door, I think. It, it, it opened the door. And you know, I I really looked at my environment with more detail yeah i always you know like the house i grew up in was a split level and i was very influenced by the high ceiling and the entrance the foyer of the home it's very yeah. influential to me so after that drawing class i guess i paid attention to detail and looking at things kind of opened up the world to you almost it opened up a world to really observe the world yeah you know and its physicalities yeah. that's what it did Bless your mom's heart. What, what an amazing woman. Okay. So, so you graduate from high school from Glencoe and you go to college. Where do you go to yes. college? I went to college up north. No name. I don't want to mention any names. I went to college up northern New York. Okay. And I entered a five-year, very severe, hard architecture program. Okay. It was in a top engineering college in the United States. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So five years, you graduate. No, it didn't happen. Okay. It didn't happen. What happened was my first year of, of, of the program, I did pretty well. I had above B average. Very nervous about getting grades. Very nervous about completing my assignments. I was very, very attentive. And very, not disciplined that much, but very attentive. Okay. My second year, in the beginning of my second year in the fall semester, mm -hmm. the we had a clique of architecture students. 
we were very close, about a group of about eight of us in the okay. class of 60. Okay. I mean, we would do all-nighters at the at the school, at the studio in the school with our design projects. We would have little parties. We would do activities together, very close. Yeah. And what we would do is have these little parties and we would smoke marijuana. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so I did it carelessly. Yeah. And a little bit too heavily at one point. Okay. At one point, I blacked out, and I was like four hours of comatose, dark sleep, no dreams. Then I woke up, and after that had happened, I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Okay. I'm not going to smoke marijuana at these little parties. Right. You know? In the spring semester of my sophomore year, I kind of drifted away from that clique, that group of architecture students. Right. We would call us Archies. Okay. And I had a boyfriend and he was a fifth year architect student. So we were close together and that kind of, I drifted away from the group and I was with this boyfriend. Right. And then um, that kind of drifted away. He graduated and he never really returned. He lived in Buffalo. He never really returned to the school where I was. Okay. That kind of faded. Right. Faded in the, in the air. And then my junior year, which is the following year, mm-hmm. I was so nervous. Oh, yes. And also what I wanted to say was the marijuana lingered. The effects lingered in me. It made me goalless. It made me depressed. Oh, it made wow. me have a low self-esteem. Trouble doing my assignments. That effects, and it lingered. It didn't completely go away. So that wow. was lingering in me into my oh. junior year. Wow. My junior year, in the beginning, we were given a very difficult uh, assignment for our design course. The design course was the core course of the entire curriculum. Right. Everything evolved around it. Structures, um, physics, uh, building materials, uh, and another uh, an elective course you could take, art or music or whatever you wanted to do. Right. But the design course was the big course of the entire curriculum. Well, what I did, I dropped out of the design course, which was a mistake. I thought I was taking, uh, I was taking an easier route. I signed up for a studio art class instead. Did very well in the studio art class, very well. But I really felt that I had lost something when I dropped the design course. Hmm. I kind of lost the path to a five-year degree, to completing what I had started. So okay. that lingered in my mind, yeah. along with the effects of the marijuana. Okay. So, so then I had, double whammy. Yeah. it's a double whammy. Yeah. And then in the springtime of the junior year, I had an, a boyfriend, very nice guy, very creative guy. He had lived in uh, Europe with his parents. They're American, but they lived in Europe in Belgium. And his father was an executive, I guess, in the trade markets, very big trade markets in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And so he was at school, you know, in upper New York. Mm-hmm. And we had a great time. But I don't think that he really fit into the program, so to speak. He was like a he was a, a very creative, very creative dresser. He kind of stuck out and, and yeah. kind of didn't fit. Okay. Well, that being the case. Summer came along, and 
then the fall of 1977. Mm-hmm. He did not return. He instead he went to he transferred to an architecture program in Sweden. Okay. So very talented. Time. He spoke Swedish. He spoke French fluently. Very talented. Hmm. Well, when I came back in the fall, I was I was really de- close to being devastated because yeah. we had a lot in common, both very creative. We both had a lot of values together. We did a, so many things together. I was devastated. Right. Yeah. I was really alone because yeah. I had cut ties with that architecture clique and my boyfriend didn't return. Wow. So that left me kind of, you know, it's like a breakup could be very devastating. Absolutely. You know, and this was a very hard program. And especially if you feel alone and isolated and you already yes. feel the effects of the marijuana lasting, right? And then you and then you're you and then that class that you that design class, I mean you start piling all this on and pretty soon it feels like you're suffocating. Yep. I was suffocating in frustration and despair. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I had signed up again for for the design course. I decided to go back. I said, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna finish what I'm gonna what I started. Well, when I entered the uh, the design course, I I was a good designer, really great creative designer. I could make buildings out of cardboard, really sculptural buildings. Mm-hmm. But I did not acquire the discipline to drafting and and communicating the design in drawings. Gotcha. And that was the most important part because to build a building. You need drawings. You need mechanical details. Right. You need elevations to see what it looks like right. on paper. And you feel what communicate it. Yeah. Communicate to your client. Right. In this case, communicate to the teacher and the class. Well, we and the contractors, up. right? So in real world, you've got yes. to communicate it to the regulators. You've got to communicate it to the to the to the uh, building department. You've got to communicate it to the planning department. You've got to communicate it to the to the bank. I mean, you've got to communicate to everybody, the client, right. contractors, everybody. Right. And so what happened was I couldn't really transfer my dream idea into gotcha. reality. Gotcha. And that was very frustrating to me in design class. I was floundering. I so. And then again, of course, I had all the lingering effects, as we spoke of, in the yeah. back of my mind. So anyway, I befriended this gentleman who's about 28 years old he was a graduate of the architecture program and he was assisting a professor a visiting professor from austria in a class in the architecture school and the class was how socialism affects architecture mm-hmm. how it affects the government affects the built environment right but you could see in europe you could see a lot of the architecture there and their governments there it's kind of like very reflective yeah. So anyway, so this gentleman, we'll call him Joseph, he was assisting the professor. Yeah. I became close with Jeff, Joseph, but only platonically. I didn't, you know, I wanted a friendship more than anything, nothing else. Mm-hmm. And he saw that I was struggling. Mm-hmm. I was so much struggling. I was going back and forth between his apartment and my my apartment and I had a very difficult time in the studio and the class. I just was so frustrated. I was on the on the verge of breaking. Right. He saw this 
but he couldn't come to my rescue. Oh. He just, I don't know if it was deliberate or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so I would go home a lot. I would visit my home on Long Island a lot. And I had this little car, so this little Volkswagen, mm-hmm. little rabbit Volkswagen, one of the new cars back then. Yeah. So I would travel to Long Island, back up north, et cetera. So I went home for Thanksgiving uh, weekend. Yeah. And my parents noticed that I was really not well. Yeah. You know, I was just very inside myself. Very, also like a lingering depression. I just, I couldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I was trapped, yelling and screaming inside. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I got in my car and I went back to the north, to the school, to the college. Mm -hmm. And Joseph was having a little party at his apartment with his roommate. His roommate was We'll call him Hans. He was a physics PhD student. There you go. Yeah. Very the physics in that college was very big. Yeah. Very big. Oh, sure. So anyway, I went to this little party. You know. Although I I, I have to tell you, I returned to my apartment and I had two roommates in my apartment, mm-hmm. which were they were their own clique. And I was also feeling a little isolated amongst their little clique. Right. Yeah. So Anyway, be it as it may, I went to this party. I talked the whole time. There were about eight physics students there mm-hmm. talking the whole time. I don't know what I was talking about, but I was talking. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the party, everybody left. And I stayed behind with Hans and Joseph because I was close. Mm-hmm. And Joseph gave me this brownie cake, delicious brownie cake, mm-hmm. laced with angel dust. PCP. Oh my gosh. I didn't know it. I was just eating the brownie. To me, I was eating, you know, I was hungry and I was eating this delicious brownie. Right. Well, moments later, after I completed eating it, my head was spinning. Mm. I hallucinated a cavernous space of lit white candles. Wow. Close to death. I felt almost like symbolic of dying. Wow. I wanted to jump out the window. It was a first floor apartment, but still, I wanted to jump out the window and run away. Mm -hmm. Leave all my problems and all my troubles and all my frustration. I just wanted to leave it, abandon it, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't. Right. Joseph held on to me to keep me from running running away. And then I rested on his bed for Mm -hmm. about an hour. Now, mind you, I didn't put this together years later that this was purposeful, what Joseph did. He wanted to have more in the relationship. And this was his way of scheming, thinking that I was going to be intimate with him, being high on PCP. Oh, my goodness. Almost like the modern Me Too Too movement. Yeah, almost like a roofie kind of thing, yeah. Yes, but that didn't happen. I was just so beside myself and so deranged and so uh, spinning. My head was spinning. But anyway, I managed to rest for that hour on the bed. Then I left and got in my car. I drove in my car. I drove 
to Interstate 90, which goes across Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Then I turned around and drove west on 90 towards the New York State Thruway. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, paranoia and panic took over. I imagined that there was a revolution going on between the capitalists and the socialists. Wow. And my people, my my people I've known all my life were leaving the earth in spaceships and I was going to be abandoned to an apocalyptic world. Oh my goodness. This is all going on in my head. Yeah. So I go on the throughway, the New York State throughway, going south, mm -hmm. thinking that I could go to Poughkeepsie which was about two hours south. Right. To see my boyfriend who did not return to America. His brother was going to a college in Poughkeepsie. Oh, wow. Maybe he could save him. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, my mom going down, all my, my, my mind said, no, he can't. He can't mm -hmm. save me. I can't do it. I can't go there. I turn around and go back north. And then I turn around again and go back south. I'm in a, like a frenzy of what to do. I don't know what to do. Like a finally, finally, this is really quite something. I parked on the shoulder of the highway. I abandoned my car. I don't know what I did with my pocketbook. I think I left my bag in the car. <laughs> I abandoned the car and I started walking on the shoulder of the highway, not in the middle of the highway. It was rainy, kind of damp weather. Mm -hmm. And I think for some reason I lost my shoes in a, a swampy area. And I was looking for the space launch pads, mm. launch pads for the spaceships, but that did not exist. Right. So I was walking till about the time was the time sequence was about 12 o'clock till maybe when the sun rose, like seven in the morning, five, mm. six, seven in the morning. Mm -hmm. I was walking. Or I, I must have walked about 12 miles. Wow. Reality hit me for a, a split moment. I hitched a ride back to the college town where my apartment was located right the driver left me off about maybe four or five blocks before my apartment which was in a little house mm -hmm. i got back to my apartment i was like i hadn't eaten in 24 hours or whatever i was disheveled dirty no mm -hmm. shoes my father was there, my frenzied father. Hans and Joseph were there, and my two roommates. At your apartment? At my apartment. They were all waiting for me anxiously if I was ever going to return. Because wow. I was missing for about 24 hours. And what happened was the state police found my car. They found the registration in my car, which was registered to my father's business. Right. So they called my father and said, we found a car belonging to you. Mm -hmm. And then he said, yeah, that was my daughter. Right. So immediately he traveled north in that period of time that I was breaking down. Right. He got to the apartment and he was waiting there. They were all waiting to see if I would ever return wow so Incredible. then at that point yes that point this is only the tip of the iceberg right many breakdowns mm. but anyway so my father took me i aborted the program 
mm -hmm. and left. He took me in his car, drove three and a half hours down the New York State Thruway to Long Island. Mm -hmm. It was probably the hardest journey for him to do since his he was a soldier in World War II. Right. He had to keep me from jumping out of the car. Yeah. Very, very ultra frightening. Yeah. He had one hand on the wheel and one hand on me. We get down and he took me to a psychiatrist for the first time. It was very foreign to me. I, I you know, I was never... I was always a healthy child. I never had any medical issues, blaring medical issues or anything. Right. But anyway, so this is the first time that I'm really taken sick. Yeah. You know, seriously. Mm -hmm. I saw the doctor. We sat there for about, I sat there in his office for about 20 minutes, not saying a word. Mm -hmm. Because in my head, the revolution was still going on. And I was going to be captured. So you're still dealing with the effects of this. I'm still dealing with it. It didn't wow. go away. It went, it came, it went, it came. So I'm sitting there and he didn't say much. He didn't say anything really. He was like a Freudian for whole, his whole career with me. Mm -hmm. He was a Freudian style psychiatrist where he would say minimal words and let me free associate me talk about my experiences, about events. I had to do all the talking and he would never offer any kind of common sense or experience, shared experience or anything, anything mm. warm. Wow. That was the nature of his kind of conduct as a therapist. Yeah. Anyway, so he informed my father that I had a nervous breakdown and I can convalesce at home. So after that, he took me home and my mother was there and my mother, she she had a hard time dealing with this whole situation. It's right. sort of like she couldn't really hug me and say everything will be all right. It was not her nature to do that. Yeah. But however, what she did for me was for like the next three weeks, we did art projects, almost like uh, art therapy. Mm -hmm. She would have me do cutouts and collages and drawings and we worked on that for about three weeks. I was in a stress-free environment. Mm -hmm. And I got better. Wow. I got better. But that was only the first breakdown of many. Mm. My goodness. So, so you go home. You, you do this art, and it helps you to sort of recover. Yes. Then what happened? Okay, so about, I mean, I, I was home for a while, you know, mm. I don't remember what I did, but, you know, I listened to a lot of music. I loved classical music at that time. I listened to a lot of music. I was really not concentrating that well that I could really get into reading books. Right. You know, which would have been great, but I didn't. Yeah. Anyway, come, come the spring... I transferred to an architecture program in Brooklyn. Okay. So I said to myself, I'm still on that journey to complete my architecture program. I'm not, whatever happens, I'm not going to give up. I'm still going to do it. Right. When I was enrolled, um, the frustration that I had with drawings and communicating my designs 
was a little bit better. Not yeah. great, but it was a little bit better. I did not do fantastic drawings, but I managed to pass and to get along in the school. Right. I made friends, mm -hmm. but I really didn't connect that much. Okay. I didn't connect. Yeah. Um, they were acquaintances more or less. The reason why is because I never shared my nervous breakdown experiences right. with anyone. I was on a level ashamed of it. Yeah. And I thought that they would think I was crazy or didn't accept me. Yeah. So in a way, I led a very double life because I had more breaks in school. Mm -hmm. I led a double life. Okay. Well, at that age, you're really concerned about what everybody else thinks, right? Absolutely. And so, Absolutely. And, and with the trauma you had been through, you're kind of protecting it. You're, 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 you, you build up some protection, some wall, right? That basically isolates you and isolates the trauma. And you do that because you don't feel comfortable sharing it with people because you don't know how they're going to, how they're going to perceive you. Yes. At that age, that perception is everything. You know, that's a big, big deal. It's a very big deal. Now, I, so, I don't remember. I, I had a few ripple breaks during my years. I had like two or three years to complete in the program. Gotcha. And I would break down every six months to a year. Mm. Social stresses. Yeah. Because also, I I did get personal with people, but I there was a wall there. But I yeah. always thought in my head that they can see through me. Yeah. And see that I'm not good enough, or I'm not. I'm a pariah in society. I'm just, I'm an it girl, and I'm. And I felt that way because of my shame and my guilt. Yeah. Well, and it's also that it's also a whiplash effect from that protection, right? Because you're you're protecting that trauma, and as you protect that trauma, it builds up inside of you. It affects your your self esteem. It affects your confidence. It affects everything. Yes, and the self-esteem was really low, yeah. and it compounded itself. Yeah, because as that as that grows and gets worse and worse and worse and feels bigger and bigger, right, it affects yes. your self-esteem and your self-confidence in a negative way. Oh, yes. You almost get to a place to where you're almost paranoid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Each ripple that I had, I definitely yeah. was, a, was a, a paranoia there. So how paranoia. long were you in in architecture school were you in three okay. years i was at the time that i went to the school in brooklyn right about 20 21 and a half 22 years old okay but you were in for about three years you think about two and a half three years 1980 okay. 1981 the spring gotcha. i graduated okay. or the summer somewhere around there yeah i got gotcha. you and all in between these ripples and nervous breakdowns during school, mm -hmm. again, I had friends. I had like a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. I traveled in 1979. I went with the architecture group, a seminar we took in Finland wow. for two weeks. And we studied the works of Alvar Aalto, beautiful mm -hmm. architecture. I managed to do that without breaking down. I managed. I really managed. Amazing. Yes. So really in between these episodes, and I will get into other episodes, 
after college. Right. But in between episodes, I had friends, acquaintances. I'm going to call them acquaintances. Right. I had boyfriends. Yeah. I continued my school. I traveled. I tried to do everything I could as a 22, 23, 24-year-old. To kind of piece your life back together. Yes. And then I also took, in, 19, in 1980, I took a trip to Paris mm -hmm. with Columbia University, and we I took a course on the city of Paris, Haussmann's Paris. He okay. renovated the pa Paris. He widened the boulevards mm -hmm. and made it the Paris of today. So yeah. we studied that in history and everything. I was there for six weeks. Wow. And I had lived... With a Leban, I, I rented an, uh, a room in an apartment with a Lebanese, a Lebanese woman, mm -hmm. an older Lebanese woman, and her son lived in the apartment. So that was kind of like a support system for me, sure. inadvertently. Yeah. So that kind of held me together in that trip. Mm -hmm. Nothing happened. It was a good trip. That's good. But meanwhile, okay, in 19, let's see, 80. Two after after I had graduated, and I went to a party in Manhattan. A uh, a friend of mine who was a good friend again, but still that distance. Right. But a good friend. Yeah. She was from Ireland. She was a she she came to America years before, but she's from Ireland. She became a close friend of mine during the year. Known her for many years. She had. A friend there with her husband, a friend and her husband, they had gone to Greece and yeah. they spoke about it. And I said, wow, I'd love to go to Greece. Yeah. I was like really into like learning different cultures and and seeing the buildings, always visual, always mm -hmm. seeing the buildings. So I said, yeah. I've got to go see the Parthenon. I've yeah. got to go. That's important. So and I went, all right, about three weeks later, I had made this plan to take a seven-day tour of inland Greece, the mm -hmm. ancient ruins, mm -hmm. and then seven days henceforth at Club Med. Ooh. Club Med in those days, it was on island. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like a whole social kind of a thing. Yeah, all-inclusive resort. Those were cool. All-inclusive, yes. And at that time, it was even more so than now. Yeah. Now it's cruise ships, not much Club Med. Yeah. But anyway, so I had gone myself with nobody. I signed up for the tour and I was on the plane to Greece and I befriended this woman and her husband and they were touring Greece on a different a different trip, mm -hmm. but doing touring. I got very personal. I, I spoke very personal about all my uh, my situations of boyfriends and whatever I said, I was like complaining to her and everything. So I got too personal. So getting too personal kind of struck a nerve in me again, like this thing about I'm transparent and what if they know how low his self-esteem I had and what if they knew what I went through and they could see right through me. I, it was a paranoia kind of a thing. So that yeah. set off a chain reaction for the whole thing. That's that trauma again. That's that same like, thing. You know what? It's like post-traumatic stress to yeah. my nervous breakdown. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, so what it is. Goes on. So I get to the hotel, kind of a downtrodden hotel, mm -hmm. you know, in Athens. Mm -hmm. 
And the, and that day and the following day, I went to, before the tour, I had like half a day. I met this couple at the Parthenon and we climbed the steps all the way up to the cliff to the Parthenon. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a vista. Mm -hmm. It felt like a little peanut next to this tremendous, tremendous ancient masterpiece. Yeah. So that struck me. Mm -hmm. So that kept me, that kept me going. Yeah. That, that admiration. Anyway, I left the couple. They went on their own. I never saw them again. Following day, I went on, on this bus tour. Well, mm -hmm. on the bus, all foreigners, except for three Americans. All the foreigners spoke different languages, mm -hmm. were in their own little cliques. Mm -hmm. I befriended this elderly gentleman who spoke English. I guess he was American. I forgot where he was from. And I sat with him on the on the bus. He was much older than me, you know, like 30 years. It was a very strenuous trip. We would go to these ruins and she would speak hours. The, the, God, the God knew all about the ruins and the life and the civilization around the ruins. Mm -hmm. she, and all the ruins after a while looked alike. Wow. I was struggling. And then we would stop off at a hotel in a in a town and for the night, and we would experience the food. And then the following day, we would get back on the bus. Yeah. Well, I began to lose my sleep. I couldn't sleep. Mm. I could not sleep. And that was one of the symptoms of my episodes. Yeah. No sleep. Yeah. The trip, I I I started to decompensate. Mm. I stayed on the bus while people would tour. Jeez. I um I I, I couldn't talk with anybody. I I started to get withdrawn. Um and the European crowd wasn't that friendly. Yeah. You know, there were French people there who didn't like Americans. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like that tension. Yeah. I felt mm -hmm. I felt alone. Yeah. I always actually going through all of this, I felt alone. And you probably had a heightened sense of feeling too, because you're going through this trauma, right? You're going through all this and you're paying attention to things that you might otherwise ignore because you're almost hypersensitive, right? And yeah. so you notice things that you wouldn't otherwise notice. Yes. Wow. Anyway, so day... So then it just starts snowballing on itself. It did. you're not yeah. sleeping, right? Yes, yes. Ugh. Anyway, the... Um, I can't even imagine. Yeah, and and I started kind of like mildly hallucinating. We went to, um, I think the sixth day. I forgot the name of the place. It's where Apollo and the gods, they had like a... I forgot. It was a big, beautiful cliff stone with with the ruins and i started jittering imagining that there were faces of my parents in the stone when i looked out of the bus when i was there and everybody else was was going i yeah i can't think of the name right now of the place but anyway it's famous yeah and then i was deluded and i said to myself you know if i'm married I'm not going to go through all this. I, I figured if I get married, it's going to solve my situation. 
So here I am in my delirium. I walk up to the bus driver and I asked him if he would marry me. Crazy. And he got up and he said, go to the back of the bus. He was very threatened for his job. He said, go to the back of the bus, go back where you're sitting. Wow. Go to me back. And I sat there and I said, well, that didn't work. Yeah. I mean, I was like out of my mind. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so anyway, the tour finally ended. I'm back in Athens in the hotel. This goes on for seven days now without sleep. Unreal. That night, okay, before I was supposed to go to Club Med, Mm -hmm. this is the seventh night. Right. I I just was tortured. I I couldn't sleep. I I tried to sleep. I couldn't sleep in my room. It was torture that I just couldn't. I was so overtired. You know how that is when you're over, over, over tired and you can't sleep. Yeah. So I went to the top of the hotel where the concierge was having a smoke. And I said to him, Penny, for your thoughts. And he said, go back to your room. It's dangerous. Go back to your room. Hmm. I went back to my room. Then I got up. And I went to the front door. And I walked out of the door of the hotel. Hmm. And I started to walk the streets of Athens at 12 at night or whatever it was, 12 or 1 in the morning, wandering the streets of Athens. Luckily, this is really something that out of the blue, a soldier dressed in uniform asked me if I had a light for his cigarette. Wow. I said, no, I don't. He goes, let me escort you around the city. So he and I walked all around Athens to wealthy neighborhoods, to poor neighborhoods. And then he walked me back to my hotel. That was about six in the morning. Right. I said to myself, forget Club Med. I have to go back to New York. Right. I got my stuff. I got in a cab. I said, take me to the airport. Mm -hmm. I got in the airport. I managed to find a flight attendant and said to them, I am sick. I have to return to New York now. Right. Didn't stop there. I got the plane. That would never happen today. Right. Never in a billion years. I got the plane, a big 747 Mm two-story. I'm sitting in the seat in the plane by the window, and there's a young lady next to me trying to make conversation with me, but by then I was comatose. I couldn't I couldn't talk to anybody. I just sat there disheveled because I haven't slept for seven days. Right. Disheveled. Yeah. I haven't changed clothes, nothing. Exhausted, yeah. Anyway, so there was these two fellows in the back of me sitting in the back. They were talking. I imagined that they were talking about me. Oh no. Here I am thinking that I'm a pariah and I stick out and I'm a I'm a I'm a creature. Not fitting into society and humanity. I thought he was joking about me. I got up. I looked at the guy sitting directly in back of me. And I slapped him in his face. Now, by then, everybody was shocked. They thought there was going to be a a battle. Mm -hmm. Everybody was like, shocked still. I got, and I, I turned toward the aisle, passed the girl in the seat, went to the aisle, went down the aisle, climbed the steps to this 
first class, which was mm -hmm. on the second level, found a seat in the first class, and I sat there. Mm -hmm. Not budging. Mm -hmm. And the um the attend the flight attendant brought me a piece of cake. Mm -hmm. he, he, they all thought I was tripping. They all thought I was on heroin. Yeah. Or something. They all thought I was the whole plane thought I was tripping. Right. I wasn't. I was in a nervous breakdown. Yeah, no kidding. At those days, that was not common. That that was not, yeah. you know, people didn't do crazy things like that in those days. They did. Oh, ordinary for sure. Yeah. Now they have some of the celebrities have done crazy things. Right. But back then, no. Yeah. Anyway, so I managed to sit there, and when the plane landed, everybody got out, and the transportation police came up the stairs and handcuffed me and wow. brought me to the transportation police yeah. precinct in the airport. Wow. I had them call my father. My father came and took me. And then we went to the psychiatrist again, who was ineffective. He never asked me, was I sleeping? He never right. asked me. And I could never communicate my symptoms. Yeah. I, I just couldn't. I, I, I didn't know enough. Well, it's hard when you're struggling like that, you know. So we're running a little bit low on time. So can okay. we let's talk about the book for a second? Okay. So, so you what made you write the book? Okay, so in 2010, I had a breakdown and I haven't had one since. Okay. I decided to write the book because I thought, you know, with all these experiences and things, I can help people. Yeah. Because I there heard. are a lot of people. Maybe not to the danger zone that I did. Right. But there were a lot of people struggling and depressed at lingering crazy stuff that they can't put their finger on. Yeah. So if they read this, they can go, yeah, I mean, she's going through this and I'm going through something like this. Well, you felt like a pariah. You felt like you were on an island by yourself emotionally, right? And yes. Like you were well, you like you were walled off. When people read your book they now know they're not alone. They now know that this is not that out of the ordinary. They now know that there's somebody out there that's that's experienced something similar to them. I'm, I'll bet this will save a ton of people. Absolutely. And there's more episodes. Yeah. I had a, dev I'll very quickly, I had a very devastating oh. one where I went seven days without sleep, oh. paranoid that my apartment were going to persecute me. I was in an apartment building on the third floor. And I had gone to this psychological workshop again. That was a stress killer. Yeah. And on the seventh day on Halloween, I had gone seven days. I said, I have to go out of my apartment. I can't go out the front because they're going to kill me. Oh, wow. So I went out the window. I fell 30 feet. I planned my fall, fell 30 feet. And after that accident and all the hospitalization and surgeries, I found the right doctor, a high-risk psychiatrist, and right. my life began to turn. And you wrote the book. So in the book, you talked about the experience with the high-risk psychiatrist? Yes, I did. His name is George. He so, was common so, sense. Common yeah, sense. so we want to, so you're giving people the tools to yes. deal with this kind of thing. And that's not only that, but to look for the right therapist. You have that's to. incredibly important. I'm telling people, if you can't, if you're not, effective if it's not effective in three or four months look for some other therapist yeah. same with medication 
Yeah. Right now we have a lot of medication. Yeah. If one medication is not working after three months, try another medication. It's all trial and error because it's a very gray mental mental illness is very gray. Well, and, and be your own advocate, right? Tell tell your medical professional what you're dealing with. Tell them it's not effective. Start, you know, just keep looking, right? Keep searching is what you're getting at. Because yes. somewhere in there, like you experienced, there's the right high-risk psychiatrist. There's the right, there's the right medical, right? There's the right type of therapy. You found it and you wrote the book, and now other people can find it when they read your book. Absolutely. And also writing the book, I was able to discern my patterns because there was right. a pattern of symptoms leading up to each breakdown. I'll bet it was cathartic too. I'll very cathartic. Really, and very detailed. Great. I have real yeah. strong memory of everything that happened. Yeah. Everything I can tell it's detailed. detailed. I can yes. tell just from our interview that it's detailed. Yes. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. We're going to put a link to your book on your description on the podcast so yes. we can get the word out okay also artwork thank you enough for being, being a painter i turned to being a painter from an architect yeah, i love that i saw some of your work online you're really good thank you you're really talented thank you again so much for being our guest on the mike litton experience thank you for having me i thoroughly enjoyed our time together me too thank, thank you. you take care we hope you enjoyed another episode of the mike litton experience if you did do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.